Brother James said we'll be in the book of Jonah. Hope to use the book of Jonah and also a portion of Acts uh, to show you some parallelisms in the truth of the gospel and man's response to the gospel. But before we dive into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come before you once again today, we ask you, Lord, that you would sanctify us by the truth of your word, the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the lamb slain before the foundation, is the living word, he's the light, he's the way and the truth. God, help us to rest upon the fact that only Christ is sufficient. Not only is Christ sufficient, but he has been given authority and dominion over all things. And as slaves to righteousness, God, we're to submit to his lordship. We don't need to make Jesus Lord because he is Lord, but we need to recognize, Lord. And as you have called us to do certain things, as we'll see in the text this morning, I pray that we see ourselves... In Jonah, that we may also see ourselves in Paul and see that you have commanded us to do certain things, God. And I just pray that we as your people would follow those things and not provide a response, anything other than, yes, Lord. Lord, give us this mind that has been in Christ. Give us this attitude that it belongs to Christ. And give us the desire to serve you as the only begotten has done. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to read to you the first three verses of Jonah, chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> past few weeks, I've had the privilege to uh, bring forth some sermons from what seemed to be popular biblical stories, and, and I had no intention of doing that again this week. But as the Lord was convicting me over how we as a church view His sovereignty and His grace and His mercy, I was led to another passage, and I think this is a a great passage. And most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah, and like with many other accounts, we tend to place the emphasis upon something other than what we should. We lack a true biblical discernment, the church at large, when it comes to reading the Bible and understanding the spiritual truths of Christ and the gospel and the work of God in our lives. And in in understanding that we lack that discernment, we see that we can never fully understand what God has placed before us if we're not to read the Word in its entirety. We can't just take a story out of context and expect to understand what God has for us if we're not familiar with the entire Word. And so when we look at Jonah, we see that the account 
first and foremost, is not about a well. I want to take that and lay it aside, make it clear to everyone today that it's not about a well. It's not about a fish either. Though if it comes down in your mind to well or fish, the answer is fish. The word is dak in Hebrew, dalit gimel. It means a fish. Certainly our God, as he's given inspiration to write the book of Jonah, he knows the difference between a well and a fish. And when you think about it, if we're to look at what happens, that this animal, this creation is to swallow up a man, is it greater to think that a whale would do such or that a fish would? Well, certainly it would be a greater miracle for a fish to swallow up a man than it would be a whale. God is unique. But the story isn't about a fish. Uh, if you're a Hebrew scholar, you'll recognize that in the text. If you can read the original language. And our flesh tends to overemphasize these things, the major elements of the text. And then the minor things seem to be overemphasized as we look at what really should be minor. The story of a man, Jonah. The story of a fish that swallows him up. The story of Nineveh. All of those things are minor but that's where we place the majority of our emphasis. The truth is that this text is a revelation of who God is. And when I say who God is, I mean that God is God. He's a sovereign God. And this text tells us that He is in control. He's commanding our destiny through the person of Jesus Christ, certainly as New Testament saints. But that also it's revealing to us some of those attributes of God that we miss because we're so enthralled with a giant fish or a man being swallowed. This particular passage is glorious because it tells us about God. We see that Jonah is a prophet of God. We've seen more than one prophet. We're familiar. There are all kinds of prophets in the Bible uh, if you think of one, we have Isaiah that he presents himself before God and God wants to use Isaiah and he says, use me. And then we have today Jonah, a prophet of God. And as he's before God, he says, no, my brother Carl brought us a message. That not me, but somebody else. Send somebody else. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in doing your work. But the verse one tells us the word of the Lord came to Jonah. I want us to notice this. The word instructed Jonah to go into a great city. The word came to Jonah. He wasn't searching for the word. But we see that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and instructs him to go to a great city called Nineveh. When he goes, he's to proclaim the truths of God and condemn to some degree their actions. Describe for him what all the prophets would describe. You need to flee from the wrath of God to come. Do your iniquities. Do your sin. It was an evil city. Sin was rampant. God was displeased. These things still exist. We know that Jonah did not heed the word of God. He didn't listen. And instead in verse 3 it says that he flees. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Jonah does what the flesh of every man seeks to do according to his nature. And that is to disobey God. 
to go the other way, to turn from what is righteous and pure and just and holy and turn to something that's pleasing to the flesh. Jonah's no different. Jonah represents you and I. Jonah represents every man since Adam, save Jesus Christ. He goes in a direction that is opposite, direct opposition to his instruction from the Lord to go to this particular city. But as Jonah does this, God subjects the people to a great storm on the ship. It says he, he, he uh, gains fare and entrance into a ship. He pays for it and he goes and then he subjects them to a great storm. Ultimately, they're forced to throw Jonah overboard. We know that. That's how the fish is able to swallow him up. They cast lots. They uh, want to pray to the different gods. They don't know who God is. They, the lot falls on Jonah. He's thrown overboard. They don't want the blood of this man on their hands. But so is the nature. This is the account that happened. Soon after this, the men realize that the seas are calmed. And they make vows to the God of Jonah. Now what does that tell us? First of all, that Jonah belonged to God. And that these men were now made aware that all of these other gods were not true gods. We know from there that the fish swallows up Jonah and he's in the belly. And why he's in the belly of this fish, what does he do? He prays. Very interesting that a man would descend from the cross, descend from God. In Jonah's case, in our case, to leave the gospel... And what does he need to do? He needs to pray. Jonah recognizes this. Why? Because he represents a man that's not unregenerate, but a man who's regenerate, a man who knows what he needs, knows that he is in need of a Savior. Jonah knows that he needs God. And so he's pretty soon hurled up onto dry land, no pun intended, but he's hurled up onto dry land. And what does he do? Because he's been delivered. He's now faithful to do what God has asked him to do. And I say that, let me repeat that. God didn't ask him, God told him what the, the first verse says. It says he told him. The word of the Lord came and told him to go, verse 2, to Nineveh. So he goes. The people there repent. God spares them from destruction. Jonah becomes angry with God. He doesn't like the fact that he's sparing the people. He doesn't like it. He wants to keep salvation to himself. And in one sense, Jonah's telling us something that's true, but he's rebuked for it by God. He's mad because God will save people because Jonah is saying this is a great wicked city full of iniquity, full of transgression against a just and holy God, and you would save them. I don't want to be a part of that, God. They don't deserve to be saved. God rebukes him. But you know what? Jonah's telling the truth. Who deserves to be saved? Nineveh didn't deserve to be saved. Tim doesn't deserve to be saved. There's not one in this room who deserves it. But Jonah's missing something. He's missing the attributes that make God God. He's not only just and righteous, but he's merciful. He's forgiving. Jonah doesn't have that yet. He's missed it. And when he responds to God after all of this is done, I guess he, he goes maybe thinking that God's going to bring a message and, and maybe he thinks it will return void. Maybe he thinks that what God has decreed 
will not make any sense to these people and he won't save them and Jonah's going to be happy about that, but that's not what happened. And so he's upset and he says this, I fled from your presence because I knew you were gracious and merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. I'd rather die than see these people saved. That's what John is saying. So here we're exposed to the truth that Jonah hates to see forgiveness. It displeases Jonah that God would be God. Sometimes we as the church are displeased to see God be God. We're displeased to see that our enemies, the unregenerate, would have blessings Because the truth is that if they live, if they take a breath, if the wicked of the world would gain some wealth, it certainly came from God. It all belongs to Him. But sometimes we are very angry at God for allowing these people to continue. Jonah felt this way, and ultimately we see that this passage isn't about a man. It isn't about a fish. It isn't about a sinful city, but it's about the nature of God. His attributes are put on display. So first we see how the word comes to Jonah. He's a prophet. This is a representation of salvation, really, how the word comes. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. You didn't come to the word of God. You didn't come to Christ. You didn't come to an altar. You didn't come to the foot of the cross. The Messiah of the cross came to you. Jonah is just a foreshadow of Jesus and his gospel coming to you. Just as the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to us today in the person of Christ by the gospel message and it isn't of our will. It isn't because we're desiring something so wonderful. But it's a sovereign act of God. It represents salvation. Remember, proclaiming God's word is considered by Paul prophecy, right? We read that a few weeks ago. He said, you know, all of these gifts are great, but prophecy, this is the greatest, to be able to proclaim the truth of the cross. Jonah, like you and I, isn't a good moral man seeking out the will of the word of God. The text is very clear. Rather, Jonah is doing his thing Whatever's pleasing to Jonah, living his life in silence and solitude, keeping what he has to himself, and the word of the Lord comes to him. This is a foreshadow of Christ to come. He is the word made flesh. Just as the word comes to Jonah, the word who is Jesus Christ comes to us. He comes to seek that which is lost. He comes to redeem those who belong to him. And like Jonah, we aren't out just looking for the word, but rather the word is looking for us. And when it finds us, the word reveals himself to us because the word isn't just an inanimate object. It isn't just some words written on a paper or a scroll in this time, a manuscript. The word is the truth of the cross. 
The Word is a person. This begins to intertwine with the second truth that we see revealed. We see a revelation of God's grace and mercy. First, we see a small mercy upon how God deals with His people. In Jonah, how God deals with you and I as we don't respond properly to His instruction, to the Word of God, to the will of God. Some people, you know, like to look around and say, well, I'm just looking for the will of God for my life. Don't look. Look right here. It's in the Bible. It's not a mystery. It's only a mystery to those who are unregenerate. God's been very clear on how He instructs us. And so we see this second truth revealed, the mercy there upon the people of God as we rebel. God is still merciful. He doesn't. He could throw Jonah overboard and let him drown. For that matter, if we look at it, we say, well, Jonah's not going to do what God wants anyway. He might as well not even use him. He's useless. Just get rid of him. But here's the thing. Jonah doesn't tell God what to do. You don't tell God what to do. You don't tell God to save you. You don't tell God to provide for you. You certainly didn't tell God to create you. What makes you think Jonah did? The text is very clear. Then we see a greater mercy of God as he deals with a sinful people, a sinful city, the city of Nineveh. As he goes there, the people repent. They hear the message that Jonah brings, the message that God has sent on the feet of his people, feet of his man, his prophet. And they're spared. We know that it's just for a time, for about a century. But we see that that truth is revealed about the mercies of God for both The one found in Christ for us today. He deals with us like Jonah. He's long-suffering. He still keeps us. The the truth is some people even wonder if Jonah was saved. I can tell you the answer. Jonah prayed and God heard it. His ear wasn't far from Jonah. He was waiting for Jonah to respond. The only thing that he could do, the only thing that we can do is talk to God. Prayer is important. We talked about that last week. So God shows mercy to Jonah and the mercy doesn't end there, but we see it it goes on with the people of Nineveh and His grace and His mercy abounds. And in recognizing this kinship that we see to salvation, we see that the natural reaction for Jonah was to flee. We hate to see others prosper. Jonah did. He ran not because he had a fear of this great city. Now, Nineveh was a, a, a truly great city, a truly iniquitous, iniquitous city of people who were very dangerous. History says that these people were dangerous folks. Well, certainly we can believe that because they have no regard for life or righteousness as Christians would. So what would make you think that they wouldn't harm you? And here we are, here's a man... So intimately knowing God, Jonah, that he's not scared of the city, but it says he flees so he can leave the presence of God. He's not scared of the city. He's scared of God. He doesn't even want to be around him. So he flees. God isn't looking here for an answer from Jonah. And I think people take that out of context a lot of time that God answered Jonah with no we have to see is that God wasn't asking Jonah a question. He didn't say, 
Would you go to Nineveh? He said, go. And like a child responds to instruction sometimes, he did say no. He did rebel. And so that's why I titled the message the way that I did. Is it the free will of Jonah to respond with no? Or is it this rebellion of a natural man? Is it the flesh rearing its head? And so we see all of these things culminating. But God isn't looking for an answer from Jonah. That's why yes or no isn't appropriate. Yes or no are answers to a question. God isn't looking for an answer because he hasn't asked a question. Furthermore, they're just responses and I don't see anywhere that God has asked Jonah to do anything, but in verse 2 we see that he commands. And so what we have here is a sovereign God demanding, not just for one man to go to a city, but he's demanding obedience. Jonah is in turn rebelling. He isn't exercising free will to respond to a question or how he wishes for God to enact or enable him to do anything, but instead he's rebelling against the God of the Bible under the stench and the bondage of his flesh. He's not exercising free will. He's, bo he's bound to sin. He's a man. And he's rebelling against God. So he's having to, to deal with his flesh, and just like a father has to deal with his child... God's not taking no for an answer. Many of you are parents. You tell your child to do something and they tell you no. You say, I don't know. I didn't ask you. You go. And then if that doesn't work, what happens? The child is punished. You know, there, there's a, a likeness that we see here when we look at the kings of the Old Testament. We see like with... The book of Esther, as the king makes a decree, he can't overturn it, right? Why? Because the kings represent the authority of God that whatever God says, he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't overturn what he said. It stands true. Just like that, God is represented here. And just as I just made the analogy of a father, whatever he says goes. He's not taking no for an answer. Just... Think about this. This is the time that happens, you know, almost once a day if you had any kids. Call them to dinner. You say, come in, it's time to eat. And there's always the one that doesn't come. Maybe two or three. Depends on how good the cooking is usually. But there's some that don't come. And so what do you do? You demand. You go out and, and call them to come in. God is demanding this very same thing. Christ demands this of the church. Come to dinner. Come to feast upon the gospel. Come to feast upon Christ. The nourishment which is spiritual. We saw that he gave loaves and fish and he said you come for this temporal nourishment but what I'm giving you is an eternal life. It's the bread of life. It's the living water. We're being called like Jonah. Not because we like it or because we have a choice, but because as a great father, he knows our needs. Jonah didn't know what God was going to do. I think he had a pretty good idea because he didn't want to see people forgiven. We know that he's faithful. 
He's a great father. He knows our needs. And like in Jeremiah, his plan is superior to ours. He has plans to prosper us according to his will and according to his plan for redemption. Likewise, when rebellion is near, a good parent doesn't allow it to happen. They don't spoil the rod, but we punish the child. Your free will may enable you, and I say free will, quote unquote, it may enable you to rebel and to say no to God, but it doesn't allow you to choose the punishment to come. It ends there. It's very limited in perspective, any will that you do have, and God will certainly punish direct disobedience. We have several promises. Consider these things. He does so out of love. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Psalm 38, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. There's a discipline of God that comes out of the wrath of God against iniquity, and there's a discipline that comes from the love of God from those who belong to Him. 2 Samuel verse 14 in chapter 7 says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the son of men. Job 5.17, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Psalm 118, verse 18, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. The story of Jonah begins to paint a perfect picture for us of the sovereignty of God and the propensity for men to do nothing other than reject the message of Christ. As Jonah rejects what God has instructed him to do. Men today reject the message of Christ. Even in the church, as we sin, we reject the truth of the gospel. The instruction. Being a disciplinless church. It happens. We're a hopeless creation without His transforming power. We're condemned without the spirit of truth And without the sovereign control and predestined future appointed unto us by God, we're all hell bound. Jonah forgot that. God doesn't take no for an answer because he isn't asking a question. Now the opposite, opposing viewpoint, same situation we see in Acts chapter 9. We have the same account, a little bit different term, so turn there with me if you will. Acts chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for a letter from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way both men and women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem as he was traveling it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and he said who are you Lord and he said I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do There's that instruction that we see in Jonah. Get up and enter the city. 
It says, The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days out of sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was with him a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, O Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying and he has seen in a vision... A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. We know after that, Paul was a great minister of the gospel. Like what we see in Jonah, in verse 6, he commands Saul to rise and enter the city and await instruction. He didn't try to flee like Jonah. Paul obeys. Further on in, in verse 17, Ananias says, Jesus appeared and now has sent me that you would be filled with the Spirit and regain your sight. Paul did nothing except obey. So we have really two pictures here of a response to the message, of response to the instruction of Christ where Jonah denied and rebelled. Ananias and Paul both are obedient. They know that it wasn't a question. It was a commandment. He didn't ask for it. He certainly didn't deserve it. But Christ commanded that he be filled with the Spirit. It's the truth of the sovereignty of God. He doesn't ask us to be filled with the Spirit. He doesn't wait for us to come or take the right path or go into a certain city, but He commands us to be filled with the Spirit. So is a response to Christ much like what we see from Jonah, except that Paul didn't need all the chastisement. Paul obeyed the commands and didn't resist or say no to God because he recognized He and His will were powerless in the sight of the Almighty God. He calls Him Lord before He knows who He is. Who are you, Lord? Furthermore, we see that Paul wasn't a man seeking God. He was seeking to destroy all that belonged to God. God commanded, and as He commands us today, to repent and believe. Our response isn't a yes or a no. It isn't related to our quote-unquote free will. But if he's truly calling, it is no other response than obedience. There's no other response than obedience. Ananias was scared. He knew what Paul was capable of. He said, Lord, you know what this man did? He said, yeah, I know. He goes anyway. He's obedient. He doesn't worry about the things of this world 
because he's concerned with serving his master. If he's truly calling us, our response isn't a yes or a no. It's obedience. Pure obedience. This is the power of God to save. The power of the gospel. The power of Christ to convert. To change. To conform. To transform. It's also a look into the attributes of a great holy God. It's not about a fish. It's not about a man. It's about a loving just, long-suffering, gracious, and merciful God that who, even through rebellion, keeps us, instructs us, guides us in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Rebellion benefits nothing. Jonah found that out quickly. God will not be thwarted. And even if you're evil... And your rebellion brings about no accidents in his detailed plan. Your life has purpose and he will chastise you. He will chasten you for the good of his kingdom. Jonah's a type of Adam. He's hiding from God. We are a type of Adam. We want to hide from God when we have sin. God tells us to do this. He tells us to share the gospel. What do we do? We sit in pews on Sundays and Wednesdays. We're scared to share with somebody because we know they have an attitude. Or we know how they'll respond. Guess what? You don't know. We don't know. It isn't up to us to know. If we knew, we would need Christ. So we're to be obedient. We're to do what God has told us to do. This is a glimpse and a great indicator of our nature. The nature to stray, to run from God. We're depraved. We think we know better and our response would naturally be to say, send somebody else. Send someone else. I'm not ready. I ain't going. But with Ananias and with Paul, there's that truth realizing that God is eternal. God is sovereign. God is God. He'll protect. He'll keep. He'll comfort. He'll save. He knows what's good. And in the case of Jonah, you can run, but he's got all day. He's a timeless God. He's an eternal God. He's long-suffering. He'll wait. You'll suffer until you get to that broken point where you're in the belly and you're down on your knees and you're praying. And then when you're puked up, You'll do whatever you have to do. You'll conform to His will. And so the question we have to ask is, will it be out of joyful obedience? Will we do it immediately as Paul and Ananias when they're confronted? Or will will it be a last resort? Like in Jonah's case. After he's been chastened. After he's been disciplined. Are we trusting in ourselves? We, like Satan, would think that our way is better. But his punishment is twofold. It's twofold because one brings about repentance and conformity. And two, like in Jonah's case, it forces us to commune with God in prayer. So it's not for no reason at all. But we're relying on his ability and his sufficiency 
to do whatever his plan is and we don't have to know it. So I ask you today when you read the book of Jonah or when you tell someone else about it or especially a child, don't emphasize the fish. Don't emphasize the man. Emphasize the God. The God who's instructed us, caused us to do his will and called us to do his will. And like you tell your children, the, the, when you respond, when you give them a, a command, don't tell me no. Be obedient. That's what we represent as the heads of our house. Parents, we represent that every person has a head and it's Christ Jesus. We're obligated to respond to the gospel in obedience. Bow our heads. Fathers, we come before you once again. We thank you that you're not a God, but you are the true God. There's none other like you, Lord. All others are self seeking, self serving. But you're the God of our salvation. You're God who's faithful and true, unchanging and everlasting. Would you continue, Lord, to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of your Son, Lord, and bless this day and gather glory for yourselves, Lord, in our worship. We ask that you receive it. And that it truly be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.